Wednesday the 27th of April Welcome to Richie, the Richie Allen Show Live from Salford It's been a beautiful afternoon here It's been pretty nice in the northwest in general Thank you for finding me again Kevin Barrett joins me from Wisconsin Live this hour And live in the second hour From Portugal The vastly experienced nurse She's much more than that Jenny Lowe's joins the programme It's good to be here. Uncensored. Unfiltered. You're listening to Richie Allen on the world's most popular independent news radio show. It's the Richie Allen Show. Broadcasting live on richieallen.co.uk and multiple platforms around the world. And now, here's your host... And you can join in yourself. You know how to do that now. Leave a comment out at the website, richieallen.co.uk. If you are new to the programme, I don't have a Twitter account anymore, so you can't tweet comments. You've got to leave them at richieallen.co.uk. That's my website. I'm in good old form myself today. I'm generally in decent form, but I am in good form today. I've been pottering around, producing the programme, corresponding with people, doing stuff domestically. There's not enough hours in the day for a self-employed person. So there isn't. Maybe you can identify with that. Maybe not. Anyway, what will we talk about then to kick off the programme? Well, the government has been found guilty of unlawful conduct. Let me see. I'll tell you what I'll do. I'll read from the BBC News website. Government policies on discharging untested patients from hospital into care homes in England at the start of the COVID pandemic have been ruled unlawful by the High Court. The ruling comes after two women took former Health Secretary Matt Hancock and Public Health England to court. Dr Cathy Gardner and Faye Harris said it had caused a shocking death toll. The Prime Minister Boris Johnson renewed his apologies for all those who lost loved ones during the pandemic. We'll hear from Johnson in a couple of moments. Dr Gardner and the Ms Harris partially succeeded in claims against Hancock and Public Health England. The women claimed key policies of discharging patients from hospitals into care homes were implemented with no testing and no suitable isolation arrangements in the homes. So in their judgment, Lord Justice Bean and Mr Justice Garnham found the decisions of the then Health Secretary to make and maintain a series of policies contained in documents issued on 17th and 19th of March and 2nd of April 2020 were unlawful because the drafters of those documents failed to take into account the risk to elderly and vulnerable residents from non-symptomatic transmission, which had been highlighted by Sir Patrick Vallance in a radio interview as early as March 13th. Okay, that's the BBC. As the Liberal Democrat MP Daisy Cooper had this to say to Boris Johnson at Prime Minister's Question Time this lunchtime. Today, a court has found that the government acted unlawfully when its policies led to the discharge of untested patients from hospitals to care homes at the start of the pandemic. 
The court also found no evidence that the former health secretary addressed the issue of the risk to care home residents of such transmission, despite the government insisting at the time that a protective ring had been thrown around care homes. The government has once again been found to have broken the law. Will the Prime Minister apologise to the families of the thousands and thousands of people who died in care homes in the first half of 2020? And will he also apologise to care workers for the shameful comment that he made in July 2020 when he said that too many care homes didn't follow procedures in the way that they could have. Mr Speaker, of course I want to renew my my apologies and uh, and sympathies for all those who lost uh, loved ones uh, during the pandemic, uh, people who who lost loved ones in, in care homes. Uh, and I want to remind the House of, how, of what an incredibly difficult time that was and how difficult that decision was. And there were, there were very, we didn't know very much about the disease. And the point I was trying to make to which she refers is the thing that we didn't know in particular, uh, Mr Speaker, uh, was uh, that COVID could be transmitted asymptomatically yes. in, in the way that it was. And, uh, and that was something that I, that I wish we had known more about uh, at the time. As for the ruling that she mentions, uh, we will study it and uh, we will, of course, uh, respond further in due course. Right, that was Boris Johnson answering a question from Daisy Cooper. Now, Health Secretary at the time, Matt Hancock, has issued a statement today. Uh, I'm going to give you a little bit of it here if I can. Yes, his statement put out by a spokesman said today after the court case ruling or the High Court ruling, Amazingly, he says, this court case comprehensively clears ministers of any wrongdoing and finds Mr Hancock acted reasonably on all counts. The court also found that Public Health England failed to tell ministers what they knew about asymptomatic transmission. So Hancock, through a spokesman, is laying the blame squarely at the door of Public Health England. Problem he has, Matt Hancock, well, he's got two problems. One is he's a pathological lawyer, uh, a dangerous pathological lawyer. The second problem he has is that only six days ago, Hancock appeared on Sky News where he was interviewed by Sky's political editor, Beth Rigby, and he had something quite different to say then as opposed to what he said today. Here's a little bit of his conversation with Rigby last week. So you do agree that that was a mistake to allow people to be discharged from hospital without being tested? No, because you're, we You're saying it's both things? No, I'm saying it's that we didn't have the tests in place. So the lesson on that front is have the tests. Be ready with a testing okay. system ready to go. A dangerous pathological scumbag of a lawyer, Matt Hancock. Today, he lays the blame squarely at uh, the, the foot of Public Health England saying they didn't tell us what they knew about asymptomatic transmission. Now, don't panic, dear listener. I haven't lost my mind. I don't believe that asymptomatic transmission is actually real. I don't believe it's a real thing. And I don't believe that COVID or anything else is spread by anyone who is asymptomatic. So just leave that to one side. I don't believe it. point I'm making here is Hancock is a lawyer a dangerous liar. And there is far, far more to this story, which we'll get into in a moment, than even the High Court understands. So today, he says Public Health England failed to tell me what they knew about asymptomatic transmission. Last week, the lying scumbag said this to Beth So you do agree that 
that was a mistake to allow people to be discharged from hospital without being tested? No. Because you're, we you're saying it's both things? No, I'm saying it's that we didn't have the tests in place. So the lesson on that front is have the tests. Be ready with a testing okay. system ready to go. Okay. Because so last week it was the testing system. They had nothing to say about Public Health England and asymptomatic transmission. Okay. Because, and the reason that I'm, I'm sort of um, really clear on this point and may, you know, emphatic about it is that um, leaving people in hospital longer than they need to be in hospital is also bad for them and bad for the people who otherwise need to be in hospital. So the discharge policy had, okay. a, had an important well, merit behind it. Yeah, OK. So, so, but, so, what, so what I really think on care homes, and what I hope is coming over, is that, is that there is a narrative about what went wrong in care homes. Um, fundamentally, the narrative is wrong. Yeah, but that was the narrative we heard from a lot care home bosses, wasn't it, that people well, were being discharged you, and bringing This is the point. This is why homes. we're having the discussion, because, um, because it's actually important to listen to the science and look at the evidence and learn the lessons from the science and the evidence, mm. not say, well, because yeah. that was on the front page of the newspapers at the time, it must have been true, because mm. that isn't actually what happened. And from we could spend a, long, a lot of time talking about this, because Dominic Cummins said that you told the PM anyone going into a care home would be tested. Uh, even if you disputed that, you did tell the public there was a protective ring and then people found that people were going that hadn't been tested. I take your point well, about you know, staff as okay, well. OK, we can go through I'm each just of saying, it. is it a regret? Yeah, yeah. Or well, well, you seem to be I, saying that... I'm, I'm saying that I think it's... It's not. Well, no, I'm not. I'm saying, no, so the point about Dom Cummings is, you know, he's wrong. Um, so that's not important. Um, the point... What is important is that we know as a society... Next time there's a pandemic... Yeah, he goes on to finish by saying next time there's a pandemic, we, a pandemic even, we have a manual. It's thanks to me, said Hancock, that we have a manual, a blueprint, moving forward for the next pandemic, which will be a gift to future health secretaries. He's a pathological lawyer. Here's what probably happened. I don't believe asymptomatic transmission is a thing. I'm going to ask um, Jenny Lowe's for her thoughts on that in the next hour. She's a very, very experienced nurse uh, and trainer of nurses and she has opinions on it. We'll get into that and, and she also has opinions on terrain theory, uh, theory even, say it right, Richie, um, as opposed to germ theory. So we might get into that. Whatever COVID is or was, let's just say it exists. Well, while many of you don't believe it does and I respect your opinion, I believe whatever it was, it was harmless to the great, great majority of people. Only a serious threat to people who were very, very ill in any case. This is what I think happened. And I think this was deliberate. When they announced that this airborne virus was, was in the country and that it was dangerous and all of that nonsense, even though the UK... Chief Medical Officer Chris Whitty gave a statement in Downing Street basically saying that COVID wasn't really dangerous at all. But when they put it out there that COVID was a thing, it was at that time that they began to discharge people from hospitals really quickly and send them into care homes. The problem is, is in care homes, and this is where some of you will dispute this because you'll dispute germ theory and fair enough, we we'll, might get into that a bit later on. 
The problem is, what happened then was they, they sent a lot of people into care homes, which were basically hermetically sealed places. Basically. Um, where people were basically trapped and they couldn't really go anywhere. People with comorbidities. And incoming were people coming in with flus, with colds, with pneumonia, with God knows what. Not exclusively COVID, if, right, we accept that COVID exists. But here's the problem thereafter. This is what the High Court is missing. And it's missing it because 30 newspapers in this country were handed a dossier of information by the journalist Jackie Devine that she'd gathered over a period of months. A dossier that suggested that euthanasia was being used as a medical protocol not only in UK hospitals, but also in UK care homes. That the Liverpool Care Pathway, which people believe was, was uh, abandoned, was, was, was basically torn up in 2014, wasn't. This thing about easing people out the door, this end-of-life care, which really wasn't end-of-life care, it was actually expediting the end of people's lives. They're, they're, they, they are two different things, you know. Giving someone care and keeping them comfortable towards the end of their life, but at the same time, doing as much as you can to keep them alive. That's end-of-life care. What they were doing in care homes and hospitals was easing people out the door as quickly as they could. And they were doing that using a cocktail of drugs, including the muscle relaxant, the respiratory suppressant, midazolam. And this is true. This isn't conspiracy theory. Um, Jackie Devoy was able to uncover evidence of Matt Hancock ordering two years' worth of sedative uh, midazolam sedative conversations that Matt Hancock had with the Tory MP called Dr Luke Evans where they discussed the use of medications to give people a good death. A good death is uh, another way of saying euthanize. This is all true, this. You've heard this on this programme last year. You've heard from people whose, whose loved ones died like this because they were given these drugs when they weren't really in a situation that was terminal. They weren't really at the the, the, the door even of death or death's, death's door. That's what they're missing in the High Court here today. She made a film about it called A Good Death? Question mark, which I think showed on the iconic platform for some time. A terrific piece of filmmaking where they proved that this was going on. That people who could have had years to live months, years, God knows how long to live, were denied food, were um, given do not resuscitate notices, often against the wishes of their family, and they were given a drug that a lot of doctors have said, and including doctors have said on this programme, you shouldn't give to someone who's suffering with any sort of respiratory illness. So how many of those who died in care, in care homes were given midazolam? were prescribed midazolam? These are the questions. So um, it's all very interesting today that they're talking about an inquiry into this which might go on for several years, the unlawful decision by the government, blah, 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 to discharge people into care homes, blah, blah, blah. Matt Hancock, did he lie, did he not lie? They're missing the big elephant in the room. They're missing, I think, the story of the last decade.
and that is people were being euthanized in hospitals and in care homes, which explains away a lot of the death numbers. That's why I say you can leave it to one side whether you believe in COVID or whether you don't. Older people with comorbidities, frail people were given a muscle relaxing, a respiratory suppressing drug when they were battling a respiratory illness. And I recommend if you haven't seen it, you do check out that film, A Good Death, question mark. I think it might still be showing on the iconic platform. So we might come back to that, maybe. Not today, but maybe. Well, we will. We might come back to it with, with uh, Jenny Lowe's in hour two. I, I think we'll probably come back to it uh, in, in more detail next week, if not tomorrow. While all this is going on, and you wonder about this, I mean, not that I'm entirely naive. We're all guilty or capable of being naive from time to time. Not that I'm entirely naive. But stories emerged today. Well, it emerged last night, in fact, you know, on the eve of the High Court judgment. It's very interesting, this. Um, that a senior Tory MP was found to be watching pornography on his phone in the House of Commons. Now, I don't understand this. I'm not saying it didn't happen. It might very well have happened. I don't know who is stupid enough to be sitting in the House of Commons, which has cameras everywhere, not to mention you've got people sitting beside you and behind you. This guy was watching pornography. This emerged at a meeting of female MPs, which I think was chaired by former Prime Minister Theresa May. Uh, Female MPs came together to discuss sexism and misogyny in politics and all of that bollocks. And during the course of the meeting, someone said, uh, I saw an MP, I witnessed an MP watching pornography on his phone during a sitting or a session of the House of Commons. Here's Sky News reporter Ali Fortescue. Just to start from the beginning, this was a meeting yesterday evening of what's known as a 2022 committee. That is not the 1922 committee because it is women on the Tory backbenches. And we understand that at that meeting, two women told the chief whip, Chris Heaton-Harris, that they had witnessed a male MP in the House of Commons watching porn. So that is clearly an extraordinary claim to make. They said that they witnessing witnessed this happen happening in the chamber and in committees. Now, um, the Chief Whip's office have today condemned this. They say they're going to be looking into it. They called it wholly unacceptable. Already calls have come for the person in question, the accused, to be named. Um, We've seen in the last uh, hour or so a tweet from the Lib Dem peer, Baroness Hussein East, who says that he needs to be named and shamed. I wish I were surprised, but I'm not. And I think the last part of that tweet is particularly striking because speaking to a couple of female MPs on text, that is what they are saying. They're saying that it's not actually wildly surprising that this has happened. And this has been a week, of course, where we've seen the focus really shifting back onto the culture in Westminster. We had that story that was widely criticised in the Mail on Sunday about Angela Rayner claims that she was trying to distract the Prime Minister using basic instinct tactics. A story, too, uh, in the Times on Sunday claiming that 
56 MPs are being investigated for inappropriate behaviour. And that was something that Caroline Lucas, the leader of the Gleans, Green Party, were key, was keen to ask the Prime Minister about at Prime Minister's questions. He said that anyone who'd been found um, to have sexually harassed someone should be um, should lose their job as an MP, should be dismissed. Yeah, Ali Fortescue there reporting for Sky. It's 20 minutes past the hour. The time is flying by. I wanted to do a few more stories, but Kevin Barrett is standing by for me in Wisconsin. We've got to get him on. Just before I do that, let me read one or two of your comments. On the sex stuff, Caroline says more distraction in my opinion. You might be right. Faisal says evening all 2020 was the great toilet paper apocalypse and now it looks like 2022 is the great vegetable oil apocalypse. Yes, I know what you mean there. Patricia says asymptomatic people do not spread COVID-19. During a briefing in June of 2020, Maria van Kerkhove, the WHO, the World Health Organization's technical lead for the COVID-19 pandemic, made it very clear that asymptomatic transmission is very rare, meaning an individual who tests positive but doesn't exhibit symptoms is highly unlikely to transmit the live virus to others. Excellent, Patricia. That comment or those comments were made even earlier, if my memory serves, by the US version of Chris Whitty, the advisor to the government, Anthony Fauci, said the same. Asymptomatic transmission is not a factor. People who are not sneezing and coughing and whose noses are not running don't pass squat onto anyone. It's nonsense. That is why I reckon the people coming into care homes from, um, some of them, not all of them, coming into care homes from hospital might have been um, unwell, might have been carrying flus and colds and noroviruses and God knows what else and maybe pneumonias. And if you hermetically seal a care home in the winter and you turn the heat up and the air isn't circulating very well and those people are already coping with, as we said, other illnesses, which they call comorbidities, and you're not giving them sunlight, which you don't get in the winter anyway, but you're not giving them vitamin D3, you're not giving them zinc, you're not giving them magnesium or vitamin C, which they don't do. Those people are sitting ducks. And then, if a lot of those people in care homes then did become unwell, and a flu or a nasty strain of flu or bronchitis or God knows what else ran through the care home, and then you began to introduce drugs like midazolam and mix those drugs with morphine, they had no chance. They had no chance. Good evening to Kelly. Hi, Kelly. Hi to Jilly, uh, who says just the, the one word for Matt Midazolam, but doesn't share that word with us. I think we can probably guess there. Abdel says Hancock sounds just like Blair did when he was lying about weapons of mass destruction. Pandora says he wanted them discharged to murder factories within an hour or so, says Pandora. Fundamentally, Splatsock deserves to be behind bars for life. But remember, Pandora, Pat, Matt, I can't even say his name, neither Matt Hancock nor Boris Johnson ever wrote an instruction in their lives. They never came up with a policy document in their entire lives. They are carriers, they are couriers, they are front men for an agenda. They weren't doing this off their own backs. They were doing what they were told to do. 
it doesn't absolve them, of course, it doesn't. But they're not the ones ultimately responsible for it. Uh, Alan says, are the wheels finally coming off the Rona bus? Will any of the policymakers face justice? Alan, I would say no. But I would like to be wrong. This is the Richie Allen Show. It's 24 minutes or thereabouts past five o'clock. My name is Richie Allen. Coming up a little bit later on, live from Portugal, the very experienced and very interesting, always Jenny Lowe's. Before that, it's Kevin Barrett, live from Wisconsin in the US of A. I'm Richie Allen. I'm broadcasting live from BBG Towers. This is the most listened to independent news radio show in the world. And this is Bob Seeger. Good afternoon. Welcome to your programme. That is Bob Seeger and Hollywood Nights on the Richie Allen Show. 26 minutes past the hour from a sunny Salford, the Costa del Salford this afternoon. Kevin Barrett is standing by in Wisconsin. Terrific writer, broadcaster and former academic, of course. Welcome back to the programme, Kevin. How are you? I'm pretty well, Richie. Uh, great to be back with you. Thanks. Love having you on. You know that's been uh, we've been doing this for years and years. Before I ask you for your thoughts on what's happening in Ukraine, it seems to me, surprisingly, that a lot of independent content creators are celebrating the imminent takeover of the Twitter platform by the billionaire Elon Musk, seeing it as some sort of, I don't know, victory for free speech. I'm not sure. What are your thoughts? Yeah, I think it's it's kind of a, a checkered victory. It's it's great that people will be getting their accounts restored on Twitter and so on. Elon Musk, though, is not entirely a good guy. There's a long list of issues around him. Uh, Helen of Destroy, uh, my uh, my good friend Helen Byniski, who sometimes broadcasts with me at False Flag Weekly News, she just came back after a long absence, uh, wrote a great piece on this. So if people go to the Helen of Destroy blog, they can see her uh, kind of downside take of uh, Elon uh, Musk and, and Twitter. But I do think that, you know, she says that when Elon says he's going to you know obey the law, he doesn't want to censor any more than the law allows. Helen says, well, that's no good because look, look what the law allows in Europe. They don't allow anything. But yeah. here in the United States, we do still have a little bit of residual respect for the First Amendment. And so I assume that American political speech may be uh, loosened up at least a little bit. And some of these people who've been deplatformed will come back to Twitter. So, I mean, there's, the glass is half full as well as half empty. Yeah, I won't be holding my breath that my account will, will be restored anytime soon. The problem with Twitter is it's a leveraged buyout, of course, and Musk is in the business of making money, Kevin. And once advertisers start saying to Elon Musk, sorry, pal, we're pulling away from you because we don't like the fact that you allow hate speech on your platform, that's when it goes back to being business as usual. The algorithms kick back in and it just, um, you know, it, it becomes the Twitter of, what was the guy's name? Jack Dorsey. That's my guess. What do you think? Yeah, I wouldn't be surprised if it plays out that way. I, I don't think Elon Musk is any saint and I suspect his commitment to free speech may uh, get trumped by his profit uh, bottom line, like you said. So, yeah, you're, you're probably right. I kind of hope not. But on the other hand, uh, you know, putting our, our hopes in these billionaire celebrities is pretty ridiculous. The whole cult of Elon Musk is ridiculous, too. If we're going to change things, we really need to do it ourselves and, and not plan on uh, nice billionaires doing it for us. Well said. Truthjihad.com. Go there to find uh, more about Kevin Barrett. False Flag Weekly News, as he mentioned. Terrific broadcasting. A tremendous range of guests 
experts on so many different things and you're hearing things of course you're not ever going to hear on the legacy, legacy media Kevin Barrett is our guest when you send tanks and rockets and guns to a country uh, to be used against another country you're effectively waging war on the third party, aren't you? The US, the UK and others are basically now in a proxy war with Russia. It looks that way. And it's only a question of how far they go, supplying the weapons and the advisors and the targeting and so on, before uh, Russia goes ahead and hits a NATO country. And, you know, they're warning us. And we didn't listen to Putin before. You know, Putin did give us an ultimatum back at the beginning of the year, uh, saying we need to talk now about neutrality for Ukraine. And NATO just blew him off, and look what happened. And now uh, Putin and Lavrov uh, and, and other Russians are warning us in no uncertain terms that we're flirting with nuclear war, that the extreme measures are going to be used with lightning speed, um, things that we've never seen before in our history. And last time we ignored them, Look what happened. So uh, I really think that NATO and especially the Europeans, you know, what, what's wrong with you Europeans, Richie? I mean, you guys must be completely insane because, you know, if this war does accelerate and, and escalate and become a, a wider war, you're on the front lines and you're all going to get destroyed. And even if the war doesn't reach that point, you're going to get destroyed economically anyway by cutting off the Russian gas and freezing, shivering and having your economy implode. Uh, and so you guys have sacrificed everything just to remain a colony of the U.S. occupation that's euphemistically disguised as the word NATO. Uh, are you guys insane or what? Kevin, I'm I'm not too concerned about nuclear missiles flying over the U.K. because I've got iodine tablets, Kevin. Uh, I've got several boxes of, of iodine tablets. Do you remember? Do you remember <laughs> well, that, that'll save you. <laughs> that'll save me. I remember yeah. when we were children going to school. I went to St. Saviour's Primary School in 1979. And there was some, there must have been some incident in 1980 or 1981. There must have been some tension. But we, we, were, we were told about getting, getting under the desks and all of that jazz. Yeah, like that's going to do you any good. Here's the thing. When I talk about Ukraine... Um, I do hear from some Ukrainian people, genuine Ukrainians, and they say, Richie, while the recent history of Ukraine is, um, you know, certainly favours Russia. We know the 2014 coup. We don't have to talk about that because we know what happened there. We know that the, the Maidan or Maidan revolution was a false flag. We know that. We know that John Kerry and Victoria Newland um, replaced Viktor Yanukovych um, with their own puppet. We know all of that. But, but listeners to this show, they say, Richie, Ukraine has a long and very checkered history. And it had its own constitution 200 years ago. It's changed hands a lot, Ukraine. And they tell me, these people, that while there are some ultra-nationalists in the country, and they might be lunatics, or as we say, head of balls, head the balls, we say here in the UK, the fact is there are a lot of people in that country who don't want to have anything to do with Russia. Nothing. They remember communism. They have no time for it. They don't like Russia. And they say Ukraine is our country. And if we want to join NATO, well, that's up to us. We have the right to do that as a sovereign, independent nation. Now, there's a flip side to that. And that is, why should Russia put up with that? Why should Russia put up with NATO surrounding its own country um, by placing missile bases and everything else in other countries? I get that. So what I don't understand is why Putin didn't say, listen, 
you know, we'll, we'll look after the Donbass, we'll look after South East Ukraine and the Russian separatists there. You be your own independent Ukraine if you want, but if we get a whiff of NATO rolling into town with bases and tanks, well, then we'll bomb you back to the Stone Age. I don't understand why that wasn't on the table from day one. Well, part of the problem, Richie, is that if the Russians waited until Ukraine officially joins NATO, then when Russia bombs Ukraine back to the Stone Age, it's World War III. So this was preemptive, and it had to be done before Ukraine was officially part of NATO, although it was already pretty much unofficially part of NATO, but it didn't automatically trigger that uh, mechanism in NATO that says that every country that uh, is a member of NATO is automatically at war when any one country is attacked. Now, that would have been triggered if Russia had waited until Ukraine was, was in NATO. So that's part of the answer to your question. And then as to the larger question of why should Ukraine not be allowed to join NATO and say they hate the Russians and so on and so forth, well, you know, in a perfect ideal world, uh, maybe that would be true. But in the real world, as John Mersheimer points out in his great uh, video on uh, NATO is at fault in Ukraine, smaller countries on the border of larger countries need to be quite reasonable and to extend themselves to be reasonable with regard to their relations with the larger countries, especially if they want to remain independent. And so Ukraine just made a, a terrible mistake. Uh, and the ordinary Ukrainians who don't like Russia, and I don't blame them, they have a historical reason for that, uh, but they got suckered by the lunatics, the neocons and the, and the Nazis, and now they're not going to have Ukraine. Ukraine is gone. It's There will be a rump Ukraine, but Russia is going to end up with everything uh, to the east of the Dnieper River and everything along the Black Sea coast. Ukraine just lost its entire sea coast. Uh, smart move there. I mean, if, if Ukraine had just decided to remain neutral and not become a puppet and colony of the NATO war machine, and NATO is the most evil empire in the history of the world by orders of magnitude. So saying that they have the right to join NATO, that's like saying you have the right to join Satan. It's nonsense. Uh, but it, it, they could have remained perfectly independent. Uh, Russia was happy with their neutrality uh, under Yanukovych and others, and instead they just threw away their future and essentially destroyed their country by making an incredibly stupid decision. They wanted to sell Ukraine out to the highest bidder, didn't they? The European Union was was one of the bidders, wanted to loan billions of euro to Ukraine. And this is ultimately what it's about. And, and it, it pains me to this day that people can't see this. I don't have a modest bone in my body, Kevin, but I am not an especially intelligent man. So if I can see this stuff, it pains me that others can't because it's so obvious. It's blindingly obvious that countries are raped, pillaged, robbed, stolen by oligarchs using things like the European Union, using things like NATO. I don't understand why people can't see through that. Why can't they see it, Kevin? Why can't people see the European Union wanted to get Ukraine into the fold so that it could loan Ukraine money it could never pay back so that it could rob it? Why couldn't they see that NATO countries wanted them to join so that they could, um, you know, further escalate uh, tensions and aggression with Russia? It's so obvious. What's wrong with people? If I can see it, why can't everybody? Well, you are paying more attention than most people, and and uh, and you you know you're not slow witted by any means, Richie. But seriously, I think the propaganda machine is quite powerful, and you know, ever since the days when Sigmund Freud's nephew Bernays figured out that he could apply Freud's discovery of the unconscious 
to so-called public relations, which is actually mass mind control propaganda uh, by manipulating people's emotions beneath the surface of consciousness and preventing their critical reasoning from ever even getting engaged. You know, since then, the uh, experts have been manipulating mass consciousness with uh, propaganda that's aiming at the emotions. We can see that with Ukraine, with all of this nonsense about these uh, supposed Russian massacres that never happened and how Russia is deliberately targeting civilians when the truth is that Russia is working overtime to avoid targeting civilians and harming its own military objectives to do so, as opposed to the U.S. way of war, which is to immediately bomb civilian infrastructure and starve everybody and murder half a million. But you don't know, Kevin, hang on. You don't know that those Russian massacres didn't happen. You have a predetermined, and I'm not saying you're wrong, but but you have a predetermined position. You have a long-established position where you've been writing about, quite rightly, by the way, um, the, the, the foreign policy of your own government, of Britain, of Israel. That's where you come from. And you might be, I'm not accusing you, but your critics will accuse you of th- th- that colours your opinion of what's going on in Ukraine. I say that because in war, people do terrible things. It doesn't matter if they're on the right side of history or not. It doesn't matter. Like, like I know that Bashar al-Assad is on the right side of history, but I know that his armies did terrible things in Syria. I believe the Russians have done some terrible things. I'm not saying I don't believe, I'm not saying I believe everything the BBC tells me about Russia, about bombing theatres and hospitals. Look, it's bollocks, Kevin. We know that. We saw this in Kuwait. But I believe some terrible things have gone on there. When you fire into cities, into populated cities with um, apartment blocks and buildings and houses, you're going to kill people. And the minute you do that, you lose the moral argument. Go ahead. Well, I agree that uh, undoubtedly a lot of innocent civilians have been killed uh, by Russian uh, bombs and artillery. That's true. But all of the most celebrated incidents that have been used by the Western propaganda machine to brainwash the Western audience into hating Russia appear to have all been manipulated, staged or lied about. I mean, all of these uh, famous uh, incidents. And so, yeah, while there undoubtedly are all kinds of uh, civilian casualties, these you know cases of mass Russian rape here and uh, you know, deliberately bombing a maternity hospital there, uh, and the the so-called Bucha yeah, massacre, which was actually carried out by Ukrainians. Uh, all of these things uh, have been thoroughly debunked, and indeed, they didn't. It's anybody with uh, basic reason who can sort through the information can figure out why all of these things would have been extremely unlikely, given the way the war is being waged and and given the the, the facts. And so, uh, yeah, while I agree that. When you're fighting uh, an enemy that's using civilians as human shields, uh, obviously you're probably going to kill some civilians. But the truth is that, yes, the Russians have killed a lot of civilians. However, had they wanted to win the war faster, they would have killed uh, many, many orders of magnitude more civilians than they have because they're waging an extremely restrained war based on an uh, imperative to try to minimize civilian casualties because they know they're going to have to run the Ukraine after they end up with it or part of it. Uh, yeah, so I can't. Um, I can't dispute that. The, the the your point there about them not going in there and flattening the country. You're absolutely right. It could have been done. It wasn't done. I'll, I'll certainly concede that point. Kevin, I have this feeling. You know, we've had these conversations you and I for a long time, and I know you don't see it this way, which is good because my audience needs a different perspective. They get too much of me, but I look at what's going to happen if this becomes protracted. And what's going to happen if, thing, if this becomes protracted? You hinted at this yourself earlier on. Economic collapse in Europe. 
And I believe there are those who want that to happen, Kevin. So when I look at, it, at that, I have to consider the possibility that this long, drawn-out, protracted nightmare in Ukraine, which could, I'm not saying it's going to become like the Russian-Afghanistan conflict, but it could go on if it does, the interruption of the food chain, all, all of those issues is going to be catastrophic in Europe and elsewhere. And I know there are those who want that to happen, including those behind the Great Reset Agenda. What am I supposed to think? Well, I can't really argue with that, Richie. Uh, I don't really disagree with that. Uh, I recently interviewed Peter Koenig, who used to work for the World Bank and is now a, a pretty serious world-class dissident about this. And he argues that this war is part of the Great Reset Agenda and that indeed it's been deliberately designed to uh, trash the global economy and that these Malthusians are behind it. And folks who, who think that the population is, is too high and uh, we might as well start <laughs> reducing it yeah. by whatever means necessary. And so Peter and others of, of that uh, line of thought, who I think very well may be at least partly right, if not completely right, you know, think that the not only COVID, but also the, the vaccines are all designed to damage us uh, in service to depopulation. And Kevin Galilee also has, has written a whole book about this. Uh, and this Ukraine war is certainly going to help depopulate the world to one extent or another. So and, and, and of course, it's designed also to try to bleed uh, Russia and they, they're trying to draw Russia into another Afghan bear trap. And this is all in service to establishing a one world government presided over by the so-called uh, neoliberal uh, capitalist Western oligarchs. And then they'll implement these uh, kind of mass control measures and get total control of, of everybody. And so, yeah, I, I think that's probably in, in broad strokes, uh, what you said is true. I know you definitely don't agree with this, but I believe that every world leader is either consciously or unconsciously in lockstep with it. And I know you don't agree with that. And you'll make a great argument as to why you don't agree with it, I have no doubt. But I believe that they have the technology, they have the sophisticated weaponry, they have the means to impress upon people, even through their subconscious, to make decisions that maybe they don't even realise they're making. Why am I saying that? Because I look at China, I look at Shanghai and Beijing, and I look at the fact that they haven't had a single COVID death in over a year. And yet the premier of that country, Xi Jinping, is locking tens of millions of people down into their houses, making their lives a misery starving them. Now, there will be people listening to this, they'll say that I've drunk the Kool-Aid now and I'm parroting mainstream media. I'm not. This is going on in China. I know it to be. And it makes no sense. There's no earthly reason why Xi Jinping would do that. None. Not even to control his own people. There is no reason. There's no danger from COVID. People are not dying. They've only got a handful of cases. Yet he's wrecking his own economy. But it's also, again, going to cause a massive shock to Western economies when goods from China start drying up. And that's why I start to, to wonder, Kevin, if one way or another, every one of these bastards is in on it one way or another. What do you think? Well, that's always possible. I think it's probably not the case, though. I think that the folks have, they, they, the leaders have constrained uh, sets of possibilities of how they can behave and the decisions they can make. And so I think you can imagine that the leadership in Russia, China, and Iran, uh, and Venezuela, uh, Cuba, that in all of these places that are essentially independent from the Western oligarchy, the leadership is 
sincerely trying to do what they think is best for their own nation and their own people. Clearly, Putin seems to be doing that. And as for what's going on in China, Matt Eret, uh, E-H-R-E-T, has done some interesting uh, broadcasts and writing about the fact that the Chinese leadership knows that COVID is a Western bioweapon, that the people who attacked uh, Wuhan and Qom with COVID in order to target the Chinese and Iranian economies are undoubtedly going to follow up with ethnic-specific bioweapons at some point. And so the zero COVID policy, it could be because COVID is actually worse than we think. Yeah, the vaccines are terrible too. Lockdowns are terrible. But Maybe uh, COVID is going to be showing up as uh, something that's going to hinder fertility or who knows what in, in the long run. But more likely, uh, China is seeing this as a kind of a dress rehearsal for the big one when the bio warriors who planted COVID in, in uh, China and Iran do it with something even nastier. And, you know, they've been drilling for this for a long time. They've been under biological attack for a long time. And in, in 2017 and 2018, they were hit with uh, pig flu and bird flu that took out most of their meat supply. And then they were hit with COVID in 2019. And so they're totally paranoid about uh, being attacked by bioweapons. And they have every reason to be. On the food, that's an interesting answer. You might be right, by the way. I'm not going to... I'm not going to waste time arguing with you because it's a, it's, um, it's definitely food for thought and there will be a lot of listeners who agree with that, you know, who will say, look, no, these guys are not in on it. They're definitely opposed to what's happening in the West and, and look, I, I respect that. I'm, I'm not entirely in agreement with it, but it doesn't matter. On um, the food supply, very interesting conversation with John Waters, terrific Irish journalist, last night on the programme and he tells me that some, some American or Australian content creators are doing some terrific work about how false flag attacks are happening against food depots or food stores or food production facilities in parts of your country, Kevin. I'm not trying to put you on the spot, but have you come across any of that or heard anything about that as, as you know, food becomes a little bit more expensive and there are fears that there will be shortages? Um, it wouldn't surprise me, but I would, I would still be like aghast at the idea that people would start, you know, to, to tamper with the existing food supply that might be stored in certain parts of uh, the, the US or anywhere else. Have you come across any of that? No, I haven't. Uh, I, so these are false flag attacks. So who who's the patsy who's being blamed and for what purpose? Well, well, well nobody specifically, but apparently there's been a series of um, explosions or contaminations at food storage facilities in certain parts of the United States. In one place, a light aircraft apparently crashed into a food storage facility. And I'm on the fly here now. We are live. But John Waters brought this to my attention last night and said a credible content creator has been following this story. What I'll do afterwards, Kevin, is I'll get a link for you and I'll send it to you over the Skype. It was news to me last night, but um, it's a dastardly thing. You know, if it is going on, if people are trying to exacerbate the problems with food and drive prices up even further by diminishing the supply, by tampering with it. But, you know, I suppose worse things have happened, haven't they, over the years? Yeah, although deliberately starving people does qualify as, <laughs> as worse than most things that happen. Uh, but yeah, I'd be interested in hearing more about that. Uh, obviously, food prices are going up all over the world thanks to this 
idiotic war in Ukraine, which has taken out the Ukrainian food supply, a lot of the Russian wheat supply, uh, and of course the energy prices have gone through the roof and energy is used to produce food. So all of this does mean it's a perfect storm for food supply and the people who suffer will be the world's poorest people, uh, probably not ordinary Americans so much, but uh, who knows at some point, uh, maybe the chickens will come home to roost. Yeah, and it, one of the things we're obviously forecasting here is massive migration unlike anything ever seen in my lifetime, particularly from sub-Saharan Africa and, uh, you know, yeah, yeah, Africa in, in general. I wanted to ask you this, Kevin. Kevin Barrett is our guest, folks. Go to truthjihad.com. Check out False Flag Weekly News. Mentioned earlier on, terrific guest, great analysis, always interesting, never dull, Kevin Barrett. Listen, you came to my attention a long time ago when as a, um, uh, a lecturer, you were brought on to Fox News and you did a fantastic job of getting some points to a massive audience at the time about the September the 11th attacks and that all wasn't as it appeared. And that's how you came to world attention. There's no doubt about that. You woke people like me up to it and got us looking again at it. You and, and, and Jim Fetzer and one or two others. It was amazing stuff at the time. I still occasionally look at some of those interviews on, on YouTube. It's a, actually, I would for anybody who ever thinks they're going to be in a hostile interview situation on television, check out Kevin on Fox News. That's how you deal with these idiots. But um, you just mentioned about these world, world leaders and you mentioned Iran. So, so I've got to ask you this. I know in my bones that the Iranian leadership of the last 20 years or 25 years, the leadership of other countries, the leadership of Syria, um, China, definitely Russia, they would know that September the 11th was, was a massive false flag attack. And yet, with multiple opportunities, either speaking at the United Nations General Assembly or elsewhere, none of them have ever said this. And I can't think of a good reason why they wouldn't have done. And, and I really can't. And I'm a journalist and I've worked in the legacy media. I've looked at it and I, I've, I've seen no downside, only upsides to Iran and others putting it out there. Look, here's the evidence. These bastards, you know, killed thousands of their own people and they want to call us terrorists. It never happened. And you must have pondered this yourself over the years, Kevin. Why do you think that is? Well, actually, it did happen, Richie. Uh, on multiple occasions, uh, Ahmadinejad went before the United Nations. This is when he was president of Iran and said 9-11 was an inside job and a false flag. Did and, he really? Yeah. I don't remember yeah, Just that. Google it. It's <laughs> You can't miss it. And, of course, he took all kinds of flack for that among and for other things. But he, he survived. And, and in Iran, there is uh, the group. Well, his supporters and various others uh, in the camp of the supreme leader and the so-called principalists, the people who care more about principle than pragmatism, have been pushing 9-11 truth since way back, which is how I got invited to Iran. I traveled there uh, every year, at least once a year from 2013 on until I think the last one was like 2019 or something, after which we were told we would be arrested on the plane, uh, getting off the plane back in the U.S. if we went to the next uh, conference sponsored by the New Horizon Group. So the those people and, and interestingly, we got banned uh, immediately after I had finally convinced uh, the Iranians to invite ex-U.S. military and CIA people. Uh, there was uh, Phil Giraldi 
and Michael Springman and various others who were at that conference in Iran and who urged the Iranians to defend themselves in the 9-11 lawsuit here in the United States by with a 9-11 truth defense, bringing in the architects and engineers and so on. And that almost uh, worked. The Unfortunately, they had a short window of time to appeal and they weren't able to do it. Uh, there, there are different factions in Iran like everywhere else. And the faction that I like is totally pro 9-11 truth. Uh, others in Iran, the more pragmatic people say, look, we're, we're just going to cause trouble for ourselves if we push this. And actually, it's OK for us to blame our enemies, the Wahhabis and the Saudis and, and that those type of Muslims for 9-11. So we're not really gaining anything by exposing this truth anyway. Uh, so there's a debate there. But, yeah, Iran has been pushing 9-11 truth. Uh, and other heads of state have as well. Uh, the prime minister of uh, Malaysia, Mahathir Mohamed, uh, had a whole conference that it basically convicted a war crime tribunal that convicted uh, the U.S. leadership for uh, for 9/11. And you just haven't heard this because the media hasn't covered it. Yeah, it's 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 um it's poor form for me not to know. Um, Ahmadinejad mentioned it at the United Nations. I'll give myself a slap later on. I do remember him receiving a lot of flack for allegedly saying that Israel shouldn't exist. They tried to imply he was threatening Israel when he wasn't. He was just saying that historically it doesn't have any legality. It shouldn't exist. I do remember that. But the likes of Putin and the Chinese leadership, I mean, these are big players. They, they never thought that, you know, we could expose this and we could, we could humiliate these people. And, and I, I have to wonder about that. You know, that's a missed opportunity in the last 20 years. Yeah, I, I agree. Uh, well, one reason that Russia may be pussyfooting with it to a certain extent, although they, they did have uh, generals who were uh, speaking out about 9-11 truth early on. Uh, and uh, China hasn't done much. And as for Russia, though, you know, they're vulnerable because uh, the Putin regime actually consolidated power thanks to the, a huge false flag, uh, those apartment bombings in the 90s. And that, that happened just a few years before 9-11 and may have even to some extent been a model for 9-11. Who knows? Yeah. Uh, so there is that aspect. And uh, Russia today actually used to push 9-11 truth and they used to invite me on all the time to talk about 9-11. And then uh, the founder of RT, Mikhail Lesson, was murdered in a Washington, D.C. hotel room maybe six, seven years ago. Uh, mysterious murder. Um, they wrote it off as natural causes, of course. And ever since that coup d'etat at RT, RT has totally blacked out 9-11 truth. So there are factional fights within these countries, Iran, Russia, and elsewhere. Uh, and of course, I always side with the truth-telling faction. Kevin, there's a question coming in. Um, this is not a gotcha moment. Um, it's from Hoffman who says, Richie, can you ask Kevin if he knows anything about the Spanish intelligence services staging Islamic terror attacks to disrupt the Catalan independence movement? There you are. Putting you on the spot there now, Mr. Barrett. You know, I, I just don't know too much about that. I did uh, no travel to, uh, to Tarragona and, and Barcelona uh, back several years ago and hung around with my good friend John Ravuski, who's the he's the webmaster at heresycentral.is, a really good site. And and he totally hates the separatists. Uh, and he thinks that they're the ones that are doing the deception of the false flags. And I tried to investigate it. I tried to argue with him. And I just didn't have time to learn enough to figure out who's right about that. Brilliant. Hey, listen, on the just before we say goodbye today, and give Rabia my uh, uh, regards, by the way, Rabia's got a book out, Kevin. I was supposed to put something on my website about this and uh, I work alone and it never happened. Let's give a plug to Rabia's book. She's got a book for vegans, doesn't she? 
That's right. It's well, it's actually called Moroccan cooking for diabetics. Ah. But it, it's actually designed. It's it's Moroccan cooking designed to make everybody healthier because the mechanism that causes diabetes is the same mechanism that causes aging and all kinds of other problems. So uh, if you eat right, uh, you can avoid that those problems. And traditional Moroccan cuisine can be modified a little bit to make it perfect for this. So that's what she did. And she wrote it un actually un under her, uh, her other name, uh, Fatna Belushi. So people can search for Moroccan cooking for diabetics at Amazon uh, and find that. Moroccan cooking for diabetics. Check it out at Amazon. She's a real clever lady, um, is Rabia, really smart. Uh, do check that out and, and, uh, and pick, up, pick up a copy of it. But particularly, obviously, if you know somebody who is diabetic. Um, Kevin, just uh, very, very briefly, finally, uh, David has been on our website to say, this is um, David who goes by La Antenna. He says, it's the Ice Age farmer who's been looking into attacks on food production infrastructure. Um, apparently, there's been two plane crashes recently into food facilities. So that's what John Waters mentioned to me last night. Um, if you get a chance to check it out later on, the Ice Age farmer um, is looking into it. And, you know, I've had him on before in the past. I think he's a fairly level-headed guy. He's pretty shrewd, I think. So that might be worth something looking into. Folks, Kevin Barrett can be found at truthjihad.com and uh, you've got to check out False Flag Weekly News. Until next month, my friend, thanks as always for your company. Okay, thanks, Richie. Love talking to you. Me too, buddy. Thank you. Uh, check out Rabia's book. It's written under her other name, Moroccan Cooking for Diabetics. You'll find it at Amazon.com or .co.uk. Cheers again to Dr. Kevin Barrett. Doctor. Kevin's interviews with Sean Hannity, I think, in 2000. I'm going to say 2004. I'm going to say, because I'll be wrong, were fantastic. Fox News was going after anyone at the time who was asking any questions about what happened on September the 11th. They tried to get Kevin kicked out of his school, out of his uh, university, basically. They tried to do the same. Kevin, I think, might have been teaching high school then. Uh, he's a PhD. He might have been teaching high school. Jim, of course, was teaching critical thinking at the University of Madison, Wisconsin, I think. Again, correct me if I'm wrong. And Hannity brought Kevin on to try and pull his trousers down and give him a spanking on live television. You know Sean Hannity, he's one of the ugliest bastards, I mean inwardly, of all time, hateful scumbag. Don't get me started, I hate those guys. I don't hate anybody. I loathe them. Loathing someone isn't as bad as hating them. Hating is real vendetta stuff, and I don't think about Sean Hannity or Bill O'Reilly, but they brought Kevin on to try and stitch him up, and by God was Kevin Barrett brilliant. Ah, oh. and he had no experience of a hostile interview situation. He had none. But he was as mild-mannered as he, as he sounded just there. And he took Sean Hannity apart at the knees and was able to get in some very important points about what happened on September the 11th. This is The Richie Allen Show. Uh, some of your comments next. And shortly we're off to Portugal to talk to Jenny Lowe's. She's fantastic too. It's the BBG, not the BBC. This is your Richie Allen Show, live from the magnificent city of Salford. That's right. <laughs> You've got to press the button, you baldy Baxter. That's the one. Yeah, the time is a minute past six now. Second hour of the Richie Allen Radio Show. Very experienced nurse, trainer, brilliant lady, natural health. Jenny Lowe's in a few minutes' time. Don't miss her. 
BBG can do for you, but what you can do for the BBG. Support The Richie Allen Show now at richieallen.co.uk. Take that and greatest today on The Richie Allen Show. It's five minutes past six. Jenny will be live in a moment. In a moment, momentito. Por favor. Lots and lots of comments. Thanks for them. William says, you've got your answer there, Richie, as to why no one big comes out and blows the lid off false flags like 9-11. If you do, you'll be found dead in your fancy hotel room. But William, they're not going to murder Putin or Xi Jinping for coming out and talking about 9-11. Or am I wrong? I could be wrong. I have been known to be wrong. Lots of times. Thanks, William. Craig says, hate, like love, is a very powerful expenditure of emotion and should only be bestowed upon people you know. <laughs> if you are going to do it at all. That's very good advice. Faisal has shared a link to those videos or a video from the Ice Age Farmer. Thank you, Faisal. If you want to see that link, go to richieallen.co.uk where it says comment live. And Jean-Anne Crowley who has been, uh, well, for years now, a brilliant help to me during the live show by firing me links like a great producer. Not that she'd ever lower herself to be a producer, but she's very good. Um, at least 16 instances of food plants burning down in America have been, un- have been reported in 2022 alone, an unusually high amount compared to previous years. This is the second time in a week something like this has happened. Tucker Carlson said last week on his show, going on to note that another planet, excuse me, another plant was burnt down earlier. What's going on here? Industrial accidents happen, of course, but this is a lot. It is a lot. 16 instances of food plants burning down. Two plane crashes. Thanks for that, Jean Anne. Yes, something is up. That's what you've got to conclude. That something might very well be up. Shall we? Welcome Jenny Lowe's back to the programme, shall we? Let's welcome her back. Now, I know there are going to be comments. Send them through to me via the website richieallen.co.uk. You're going to have plenty to say to Jenny. So richieallen.co.uk, where it says comment live. Jenny is a nurse. She is an integrative health practitioner. She is a truth seeker and demystifier of health and science. A vastly experienced nurse with more than 20 years service in nursing and nutrition and clinical practice. She trained nurses and recruited them for the NHS. Our conversations in the last year and a half or so have been fascinating, always educational. To find out more about Jenny, go to the website genius.life. Genius is spelt with a J, J-E-N-I-U-S dot life, because Jenny wants to make it clear that she doesn't think she's a genius. <laughs> How are you doing, Jenny? Hi, Richie. I'm really good. How are you? Not too shabby at all. Uh, there's lots to talk about. Um, yes. You'll have been following the news today about care homes. And um, the, the, the High Court has ruled in this country that the government unlawfully took people out of hospital and sent them to care homes without first testing them for COVID or anything else. So unlawfully, this is a big deal today. But this has raised, Jenny, the spectre of asymptomatic transmission. Now, don't yawn. Please don't. I know this is ground that's been covered many, many, many times. But I don't often talk about terrain versus germ theory 
And asymptomatic transmission is a really interesting thing because if I remember at the very beginning of COVID, some of the key scientific advisors in the US and elsewhere said that asymptomatic transmission was never really a driver of any epidemic or pandemic. Do you believe asymptomatic transmission is a possibility? That I could be carrying something in me, but not be remotely sick, not sneeze, not cough, no runny nose, but that I might give something to somebody else. You've had the experience. What, what's the answer? I don't believe asymptomatic spread is a main driver either. And I think that there was a lot of evidence about that quite early on. But it was obviously something that they had to continue as a fear-driven uh, method to get people to obey to the rules that they uh, implemented on us. But no, I don't believe in asymptomatic spread for uh, COVID or for probably any other virus that I've you know, cared for a patient with. Um, you know, in hospitals, we don't use PPE very often as a rule of thumb anyway. And if asymptomatic transmission of viruses happened, we'd constantly be in PPE. It just wouldn't, it wouldn't be like that. So, no, I absolutely agree that asymptomatic spread is not a thing. And I think that this whole thing about not testing the asymptomatic patients and things first before they sent them out is just a bit of a cover for really poor policy that they implemented right at the beginning of all of this and actually I was listening to what you were saying earlier I listened to the first part of the show and I remembered reading a document way back in March 2020 and I found it um, and it said that basically by Friday the 27th of March 2020 at least 15,000 patients needed to be discharged from hospital and one of the main things in that was the speed at which they were told that they had to do it. And it was like literally within a few hours, people had to be out the hospital or in a discharge area. And that just doesn't happen normally because um, when a patient's discharged, there's a lot of pre-planning that goes into that discharge and mobilising the community teams and the GP and the, all the other primary healthcare services or liaising with the care home, it takes quite a while to get a care package in place. So discharging people that quick out of hospital was a recipe for disaster. And why they put the pressure on in March is unclear because you, from the early reports that were coming out in China, that you would have thought they'd have done that over a much more timely fashion before March. Um, and they didn't stop elective surgery until April either. So I, this is one of the things that actually got me thinking at the time, what is really going on here? Because um, the bed occupancy figures in like December and January were quite high in February, like normal winters, you know, the, the 80 to 95 percent of acute beds were taken up in different areas. And then literally as soon as they locked down and they discharged all these people from hospital, um, those bed occupancies in some trusts went down to as low as like 40 or 50 percent. So at that point, there wasn't such a need to have to discharge everybody out of hospital. Um, it could have been done in a slower, more uh, planned fashion. And it would have been chaos for those few weeks where there was a bit of a, a crossover. So patients would have been discharged completely unprepared. Services wouldn't have been set up. And also don't forget that services were like shutting down at the same time. So I heard from um, a friend of mine who's a district nurse and she'd been called to see a patient in a hospital, in a nursing home, sorry. And she was concerned enough about the patient to call the doctor, but the doctor refused to enter the nursing home and diagnose the patient through the window 
And the patient was basically then put on kind of palliative care because they weren't then to be transferred back into hospital. So I think the whole asymptomatic thing is just a fluff because um, it, the policy was wrong in the first place. And absolutely like any nurse would be able to tell you or doctor that that would be a recipe for disaster and people would die um, because they're not being having their package of care properly designed before they sent out of hospital. So I have some experience with this because when I was a very newly qualified nurse in the year 1999, um, there was the Ladbroke Grove rail crash. Can you remember when that happened? And there was maybe 400, 400 plus people that were injured and over 30 people died, I think. And I was working in London at the time and I was on a surgical ward and we got the bed manager came up and she said to us, uh, you need to clear out at least eight beds. And we said, well, we haven't really got that many patients that are ready for hospital, but we can cancel some surgery and, you know, we can create some beds. But what happened then was every social worker, every dietitian, every physio, every um, member of like the multidisciplinary team was there and they were organising everything and that we managed to be able to clear and get some beds prepared. We never actually got anybody admitted, but we were prepared for like a major incident. But this was on such a big scale that happened in March, 15,000 people they were going to try and discharge and dump into the community. It was a recipe for disaster right from the start. So I think the whole asymptomatic thing is just a bit of a, a cover story for their was disastrous it a, was decisions. It a mis- was it a mistake then caused by panic or was there something else going on? Uh, I think probably the hospitals were fearing Uh, a major, major, major impact on the hospitals. And it might get to the point where you were going to have to make very difficult decisions about who would be treated and who wouldn't. Because right at the beginning of this, when I was looking at the medical journals and I was seeing what was coming out of China and the early cases in Italy and things like that, um, it looked like there was going to be a really big um, dependency on intensive care. And for sure, there was an increase in patients that were admitted that were admitted as a diagnosis of COVID-19. And there for sure were more patients like that uh, at the peak or just before the peak actually. Um, So the intensive care beds looked like they would overfill very quickly and therefore lots of resources from uh, the less acute wards would have to be redistributed to the critical care areas. And it it felt to me like, okay, this is gonna be like a warlike scenario. We're gonna have the Nightingale hospitals and we're gonna have patients ventilated everywhere and you're just going to have to deal with what you can deal with like you would do in a war scenario war light scenario and at the same time I was thinking well they can get the military involved they can get you know paramedics involved in different ways and that kind of didn't happen so I think that they possibly did think that they were going to need to discharge and dump out 15,000 patients into the community very fast Um, And they were preparing for the beds. But I think the hospitals were being fed the fear from the top down. So they didn't really know what to expect. You know, some of the hospitals might have only had one or two cases at the beginning, or they might not have seen any cases of COVID at the time. But of course, what they were hearing from their, uh, the managers and higher up from the government, and every time they switched on the TV was this was going to be hell. And, you know, within two weeks time, the hospitals will be at 150 percent and we won't we just won't be able to cope. And that's why when I originally heard that they'd ordered a lot of midazolam, um, I thought, well, OK, if it gets like a warlike scenario, it might be that there's patients that are very, very distressed that should be on a ventilator, but you don't have equipment or you don't have staff or and to 
relax them, midazolam might have been used and that the consequence of that could have been that deaths might have been hastened. So I could I, I could already see why they might be ordering lots of midazolam. And it's also a drug that they do use in anaesthetics and in critical care. But then the, looking at the figures and the occupancy and everything that did happen, it is hard to justify where that midazolam was used. Um, because actually, if you look at the bed occupancy figures for that first period, where the first lockdown, nearly every single trust decreased their occupancy figures at the same time as closing beds. So like compared to the previous winter, they had more beds, but the beds were more occupied. And then the actual first peak of the pandemic, a lot of the bed occupancy went down. Uh, and that didn't really start coming up until the following winter because they didn't start re reinstating services straight away. So I think there was a lot that could have been done much earlier than they did do to prepare for the tsunami that they expected. Um, but what they did was they kind of waited till the last minute and then like dis very disorganized. Lots of people were put out into the community where they were going to have a very difficult time to do well because they had didn't have the support that they needed. I don't forget, like everybody at that time was pretty crazy about what was going on, too. So um, I think the asymptomatic thing is just it's just an excuse. It's a cover yeah. on, on, on midazolam. So I, I asked doctors independently um, some on, on air here and some privately about the claims made by the families interviewed by Jackie Devoy. And pretty much every one of them said there's something very wrong going on here. Mm -hmm. um, that while you're right, and by the way, Jenny worked within critical care in the NHS. She worked as a critical care outreach ma matron as well. So she has a lot of experience in this area. But I put some of the specific claims made by families, because what I never did on the show was endorse any of these claims, because mm -hmm. I can't, I'm, I have no qualifications to do that whatsoever. But I asked doctors, look, if you've got people in respiratory distress, if you give them midazolam and you're giving them morphine, could this, you know, in theory, could it end or help to end the life of somebody who, 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 who isn't in fact terminally ill, you know, and it might go on to recover? And to a man and, and woman, they said, yes, it could. And that, that's, that's an incredible thing to, to contemplate, really. You know, the, 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 the scale, what, what, this might be the biggest story of the entire last two years. That, and something I noted as well, uh, Jenny, was how many families said that when they complained to, their, uh, to, 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 to the carers, to the doctors and to the nurses in the hospitals, the families who complained about midazolam, they were told that they were following protocol. Yeah. Well, yeah. Was it protocol over the years? Um, no, I mean, it would be very case dependent giving midazolam. It's like you use it in anaesthetics and as, um, yeah. um, for when you're doing procedural things like an anaesthesia, because it's a hypnotic, you can't really remember what happened while you've had the midazolam. I've had midazolam before and I can't remember while I was having a procedure and I can't remember anything about right. it. Um, and they do use it for like severe agitation and end of care, like palliative care. But it's very dose dependent, of course. So if you're giving a tiny dose and someone is on the scale of agitation is quite agitated and they're not compliant with uh, oxygen therapy or uh, they keep trying to get out of bed and throwing themselves on the floor and things like that, then you might increase the dose a little bit just to be able to settle them down. Um, but if they were giving doses of morphine and midazolam that would cause respiratory depression, then that definitely has to be looked at with a lot of 
um, seriousness because, as you say, that can hasten death. Um, but I think I can't comment on any no, of can't. the, no, the and cases I, unless I looked at the case notes. To I'm see being unfair. Two- I'm being unfair because I didn't um, mention to you that I'd be getting into this at all. And uh, it's, 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 I certainly wouldn't want to put you on the spot about this. But that's what those doctors said to me. They said that you'd have to be very careful. In fact, one doctor yes. said that he wouldn't give somebody who had you know serious breathing difficulties um, midazolam. Um, yes, I, I agree with that. But if you have a patient that, say, needed to go on CPAP or the non-invasive ventilation where you have to strap quite um, a firm oxygen mask to somebody's face because yeah. you need a complete seal. Say, for example, that person isn't tolerating that because they're confused, because maybe they're hypoxic, that their oxygen levels have already gone down. Then to give them a small dose might relax them enough for you to be able to give treatment. But you sh- it should, like I say, it should be titrated and it should be dose dependent and they should always start off at very low doses because uh, morphine can, of course, cause respiratory depression. That's one of the side effects. And also with midazolam too, it knocks off the respiratory centres. And the thing is with those patients is that they were obviously ones that were already kind of decided that they wouldn't be, for example, for resuscitation for intubation because they wouldn't be a candidate for intensive care based upon like the criteria for admission. So, I'd, like I say, I, I, I don't mind being put on the spot, but I would have to absolutely look at each case. No, you'd have to see those case, case notes, yeah, absolutely. And see, see what the justification was for giving it and also see what the dose and uh, how often they gave it and, you know, what the the follow-up with that was. Um, but, yeah, it's it's uh, something that definitely needs investigating and looking into in more detail. Before, sure. we, before we move on from this to talk about <clears throat> other very interesting matters, and there are comments already coming in about other things, uh, importantly, um, would it concern you, with your experience, to hear members of Parliament, regardless of who they were, whether Hancock or others, talking about using medications to give COVID patients a good death? Um, that's genuine, that's legitimate. Uh, Luke Evans, a doctor, and Hancock talking about using medications to give people a good death, and he ordered two years' worth of midazolam from a French company. Would you, with your experience, would you want that to be investigated? Uh, I think, yes, because it's coming from Matt Hancock, but actually the term a good death is used kind of in palliative care um, because dying especially from a terminal illness can be very distressing and can also come with a lot of symptoms too um so you know there are quite common drugs that we use frequently to assist the patient if but this is end stage you know you know there is these people have been ill for a long time usually and uh they've like completed their treatment plans and everything else but from covid which was treatable and which was manageable Um, is a totally different thing. So yes, when it's talking about COVID, I definitely think that what he said was misplaced at worst or nefarious, you know, at best. Um, And it should be investigated for sure. But the term good death, I think he he was, you know, being the naive little scrote he is. Or, Or not naive, he was being, you know, the one to push it all out. Who knows? Yeah, absolutely. I, I'm going. I'm going to 
write that down, naive little screw. That's fantastic. <laughs> I'm, I'm going to steal that, Matt Hancock. Uh, Jenny Lowe's <coughs> is our guest. Do check out Genius, J-E-N-I-U-S dot life. Jenny. Uh, you say Jenny. Oh, I don't know why I say Jenny. So it's Genius. That's right. <laughs> Genius. I slapped myself on the wrist there. Uh, Genius dot life. And... Um, Check out the website. Jenny offers um, some very interesting advice on there, but also services. Check it out. Uh, I think you'll find them useful. Patricia has a uh, really good point here. We might have briefly touched on this last time, but it's very good. She says, thus, Patricia, speaking of a warlike scenario, I was wondering if Jenny has an opinion on the global pandemic treaty under the umbrella of the world health organization personally it sounds very dangerous um should you sum it up or should i sum it up the world health organization effectively wants to take responsibility for every country in the world next time there's a pandemic it will say this has to be done x y and z and countries would follow it without question i think that's about the gist of it am i right and what do you think of it uh, I think anything that has the World Health Organization involved should be looked at with a microscope um, because they've absolutely showed their corruption in the last two years, in my opinion. Now, that's coming from someone who always respected what the World Health Organization had to say and believed that they used the best evidence in their recommendations. But over the last few years, and this was pre-COVID, I already started looking into the World Health Organization and they clearly have objectives that are not necessarily in the best interests of the people. So I, example. I agree with that. Example. Um, example masks. Yeah. That's it. I don't need to say any more. Just yeah. masks and the way that they've pushed the vaccine as well. And it, it's not based on proper evidence. It's it's pooey science. <laughs> Do you know, since pooey science, since we spoke last time, a federal judge ordered the release of documents by the Pfizer Corporation. The documents showed that Pfizer were expecting an avalanche of adverse events from their own jab to the, to, to, to the, to the point where they sought or they went after basically implying a thousand eight hundred people. That's just, you know, that's just one thing. The documents they released also showed um, that they knew that there was a problem with clotting and stuff like that. Do you get the impression or do you get, get any bit of a lift from that, thinking that, you know, the lid might come off of this eventually? I think it will come off. I think it's already partly off and I think it's just wait, waiting to blow, really. But um, I think so, definitely, especially in the last two years. Uh, people, more and more people have been looking at things with a more critical eye, which is great. And we have to challenge these things, you know. The, the, the very basis of medicine should be that you use a wide, good quality evidence base. And that does not mean, you know, pharma funded uh, trials that have so much bias introduced to them that they can't ever possibly give you good statistical analysis to be able to make a decision on. So, uh, you know, the way they handpick science, it's the same with the body that uh, ICNERP that regulates the um, tech industry and all electromagnetic fields and things like that. They're all ex-industry. That's They're right. All, yeah. You know, it's all, all the same. They regulate themselves. And the, the World Health Organization, in my opinion, doesn't do what it says it's doing. And it should have a very critical eye passed over it because they don't really seem to be improving the health of the world either, do they, really? 
you know, we've still got lots of people dying of um, thirst and dirty water and famine. It's, we're not we're not doing very well, are we? Do you know what I mean? And then the health of the Western world is just getting sicker and sicker and sicker. They're not addressing the real the real you know problems that are going on. And that's so, what um, and that's what you do through your own work these days. Uh, Jenny is start life. J E N I U S start life. Do check out uh, Jenny's website. It's very well put together. Um, what about this? spate of children coming down with hepatitis and some children having liver transplants. You've got to be a responsible journalist. You've got to say, I don't have any evidence whatsoever that the jabs are at play here or that the jabs are somehow responsible. I don't. But when the UK government says that there's no evidence that the jabs are involved or they say none of the children were jabbed, I take it with a pinch of salt because I know the media isn't trying to locate the children. I know that's very difficult and it's unethical anyway, but I know the media isn't trying to find out if any of those children have had any jabs. But um, they're saying that this hepatitis um, epidemic has come about because children weren't exposed to the usual viruses they would have been exposed to during lockdowns. What's your opinion on that? Uh, well, first of all, the ages of the children looking at the dates might not have been in the catchment date for the jabs, like for the, yeah. the time of their age group. So I don't know what percentage like like anybody else does were vaccinated or were not, although they were vaccinating vulnerable groups before then. So there is a possibility that they could be. But from what I've seen reported is that so far there is no evidence is what they're saying linked to the jabs. Um, the one thing that got me thinking was that they have um, claimed that quite a majority of those patients have had the adenovirus identified, a certain type of aden adenovirus. Um, and adenoviruses can, in rare cases, lead to hepatitis, which is, you know, ultimately just inflammation of the liver, which can be caused by different viruses as well. Um, so that theory could have some you know, merit that yeah. they haven't been mixing so much. They haven't been exposed like yearly and all the time to the different viruses that, you know, mixing with other kids and things like that. Um, but what interests me is that the, the AstraZeneca vaccine was based on an adenovirus vector. So I don't know if that has anything to do with it or not. Um, but, you know, there might be other things that could be leading to an outbreak of, of you know, hepatitis as such. Um, it could be environmental. It, one of the things that I'd like to know is, are these kids anywhere near any 5G towers or anything like that? That would be one of my first questions that I'd want to know. Um, but also what it seems like, that there's a lot of people that are getting sick at the moment or in the last couple of years with like re-emergence of things that they've had in the past. So like EBV, Epstein-Barr virus or um, glandular fever, as most people know it, um, that can harbour... Um, and re-emerge when your immune system is a bit depressed. But adenoviruses don't really work like that. So uh, I'm not sure. There's definitely something that needs to be investigated. And if they're in clusters as well, like yeah. there was quite a few in Glasgow, I think, wasn't there? That's and right. And then in a state in the US. Um, then if they're in clusters, you you know, if it was the vaccines, you'd expect to be seeing that widespread, like as a percentage throughout the population. But I don't know if we are. I think it's one of those things we have to wait for more information. That's on. a good point, that. Not to, um, I'm, I'm not challenging what you've said there because it makes sense what you've said. 
there is a paper though uh, published in the I think I the National Library of Medicine Isabel Garrido, Susana Lopez and Manuel Sobrino Simoes amongst others, Joanna Lopez published a paper headlined Autoimmune Hepatitis After COVID-19 Vaccine is More Than a Coincidence and this was published in um, December of 2021 but I know nothing so I'm guessing that autoimmune hepatitis might be different to that which these children are experiencing. Uh, possibly, but yeah, possibly. And also they knew that the, the vaccine may have a negative impact on the liver because it's, it was in the trial documents. Yeah. And it was one of the things that when I went through the trial documents, I looked at and I thought, okay, so here they're recognising that there may be a problem with the liver, but they're not going to check anybody's liver function as part of the research, which was strange to me because it's like, well, okay, if they're, if they're saying that there might be a problem with the liver, why aren't they following that up? Um, but that's just another thing. The, the, honestly, the trial protocol, how that ever got passed, I will never know. Well, we know how it got passed. But, you know, yeah. how that on, on normal times, that would have never have got the ethical approval to have been, you know, put passed. And then for the rollout to have happened based upon those results, because they were so statistically insignificant that, They might as well have just made up numbers, to be honest. And yet millions of people have had them. Jenny Lowe's is our guest. It's uh, Look at the time flying by. It's 27 minutes to the top of the hour. Um, Do check out Jenny.life. And uh, Jenny offers nursing, nutritional and holistic services uh, through that website. So check her out there. Vastly experienced critical care nurse, a trainer of nurses, a recruiter of nurses based in Portugal these days uh, with her family. And there is a huge amount of interest in this conversation. Listen, on the 5G thing, uh, before we get to that, though, a number of people have said, listen, the, does, does Jenny and do people like Jenny, you know, healthcare practitioners, do they does does it mean anything to them that you know a a billionaire alleged philanthropist like Bill Gates and his foundation that that is now the biggest donor to the World Health Organization which which I've double checked that that's true Gates mm-hmm. donates more than than countries should healthcare pr- practitioners like yourself and professionals should they be concerned about that yes definitely yeah <laughs> full stop definitely full stop um, because there's a massive conflict of interest there isn't there you know they're one of the world's biggest vaccine producers and you know they they have their hands in the pocket of everything it's not just the world health health organization it's everywhere you turn there's either they're either being funded by gavi or welcome trust or bill and melinda gates and it's a massive conflict of interests in my opinion it shouldn't be like that because his foundation plans to tackle every known health issue with a jab that's a fact yeah yeah and they're not actually looking at all really at the root cause of why so many people are ill in different you know areas of the world um they're just trying to tackle it like you say from a pharmacological perspective and that's it and you know we need to take a breath and say is this the right thing to be doing and covid i think is a good example of maybe it wasn't you know yeah what about where you are, Jenny? Uh, lots of questions for you. What, 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 what have your observations been about where you are in Portugal, you know, with respect to the jabs, injuries, take up there? Are people suspicious of them? Have they gone along with it? What, 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 what have you noticed? Well, at one point they said that Portugal was one of the most vaccinated European countries, but 
in my circle, and it might just be because, you know, they're my friends and the people that I associate with, you know, most aren't vaccinated and most have managed to resist, you know, most of the tyranny, I suppose. Uh, but masks got lifted on Friday, which was a, a huge shift. And it's really nice to see people's faces again because people yeah. were wearing them outside. However, probably about 50% of the Portuguese population are still wearing no. them outside and in their cars and, you know, wherever. But uh, thankfully, they've lifted them for schools. Um, but they should have never been implemented in the first place. But, you know, thankfully, after two years, they finally lifted them. And, you know, the kids suddenly seem like they've had a bit of a boost because other kids are inviting them around for to play and have sleepovers and stuff like that. So it feels like there has been a bit of a breath of life re-injected into Portugal. I know people that have had one dose won't have the second. I know some people that have had two doses definitely won't have a third. But the, they've dropped the digital pass here now. Oh, thank um, God. Thank God for that. Which is strange because the EU is still really pushing it, but quite a few countries are dropping it. So I don't know what's going on there. Um, and I had someone I know came from the UK, arrived yesterday, and... Also, two other people that have travelled to Portugal from the UK, and there was no no checks at all about PCR testing or anything like that. So they would just walk straight through. So they're supposed to test. It's part of the rules from the UK to Portugal, but they're not mm. testing either end at the UK or, or here. They're not checking. So that that's relaxed. That's too. positive, isn't it? And we've been a couple of weeks here without free testing, which is obviously a great thing. Yeah, We have yet to see how that plays out. Well, what we do know is the news, whatever you want to call it, I'm not going to swear, the, 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 the news programmes have just given up on announcing case numbers. That's that's a good thing. Thank God yeah, for that too. Yeah, amazing. Well, here, they, what happened was they only said that they would drop the masks if there was less than 20 deaths per million or something like that. And it dropped to like 10 per million. And then the health the health service per said, million. no, we still need to keep the masks, including in schools until the summer holidays. And then a week later, they reversed that decision and then removed masks from, except for in health, you know, establishments, which is, I think they had a lot of pressure from teachers and a lot of pressure from parents as well to say, come on, you know, we can go to the discos and go to a restaurant, yeah. but why do the kids have to still be... In masks. We talked about this the first time we spoke. We talked about the arbitrary lunacy of the rules. You know, remember, yes, yeah. you go to a pub. Remember when they first eased, just briefly eased the restrictions in 2020? You can go to a pub. You can sit at the table with no mask on you, chatting with your friends. But as soon as you stand up to go to the toilet, yeah. you have to put your mask on. And people actually went for that. Questions are flying in. You're very popular, Jenny. It's Jenny is... <laughs> Jenny is start life. Check out the website. She's not paying me for this, by the way. This is not an infomercial. Um, I, I, I endorse it because I like it, because I know it's very good. Daza says, Richie, ask Jenny if adults shedding the AstraZeneca jab could trigger the hepatitis outbreak in the kiddies. Now, you can give a short answer to that if you want, but I'd like a, an opinion on this notion of shedding. I get injected with something, some sort of jab, some sort of vax, is it possible that I can walk around and bump into people, share the same air with them and shed what I've been given and, and it, it impacts them in some way? What are your thoughts? Uh, there is a possibility if it's a live virus um, or you get sick, I guess, there is a possibility. If, well, 
there is a possibility. I, yeah, and also shedding in feces. So the norovirus jab, for example, can shed into feces. So if uh, a mum is changing the nappy of the baby, then that shedding and also the flu mist, I think, sheds into can shed into feces too. That's been proven. Um, about the AstraZeneca one shedding, I'm not. I'm not sure. It did cross my mind. It is a possibility. Um, I'm still on the fence about shedding, although from talking to people and also personal experience, I do think that there could be a possibility that it is happening. Um, and, you know, remember that these vaccines are completely based on a new technology. So God knows what they can do. But I, I'm trying to believe that they don't. But I have been around people that have been recently jabbed and I felt unwell afterwards. That's interesting. And yeah. I wondered whether it was something to do with that or not, or whether I'm just a bit paranoid. Well, no, so well maybe I, you're not, because we remember women reporting menstrual issues. I can never say menstrual, menstrual issues. We remember women saying yeah. about, you know, heavier um, bleeding, heavier uh, periods. And that was a big thing. It was so big that even the mainstream, even, even the press couldn't ignore it. The Times did a big piece on it. That had to be concerning that. Yeah, and they definitely they definitely should rule it out one way or another. I mean, my feelings were I'm quite electrosensitive, and my feelings were that they weren't shedding as such, but em more emitting something, um, some energy or electronic field. I don't know. That's what it felt like to me. And I had a few times where I was with someone that was recently vaccinated, where I had a metallic taste in my mouth, or that I sneezed a lot afterwards. But you know, I don't know. But there, there definitely has been lots of people suggesting that that has happened to them. And then there's other people that say, no, no, I've never had any problems at all being around. You know, so I don't know. I, I think it's. I don't know if we're ever going to know. Oh, I hope yeah, we do. This but. is right. <laughs> it's a, what you've said there is depressing, but it's also important because. We don't have the resources to do the investigations needed. We don't. Um, and yet we have suspicions. I mean, we can spend the next few minutes, the last few minutes we have today, talking about 5G because it happened. They, they rolled out 5G. There was no human health impact studies done, at least as far as I know, anywhere in the world. I know a Belgian health minister, to her, to her credit, um, actually suspended uh, it in Brussels for a, for, for a short time period because she said that, you know, this could be a dangerous thing. We don't know what this might do to people when it's rolled out. I've interviewed the great Sir, uh, not Sir, why do I call him Sir? Uh, Christopher Busby many times over the years, long before COVID, about the damage these technologies can do to people and have historically done. And I know that less than a kilometre away from where I live, there's a big old 5G tower. And I, and I also know, because I did my own research, I looked at the maps around the northwest. These things are always put next to schools and hospitals, Jenny. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Why? Wow. Uh, because, because, again, the industry regulates itself and its profits over harm. Um, look, all I know is that I was researching 5G long before COVID came along. And the reason for that was I became electrosensitive. So I'd always lived in the countryside and never near a mobile phone mast and didn't use my, my mobile phone very much, but I would work on a laptop with Wi-Fi. And then I moved into a, it's a town really, they call it a city, but it's a town. And um, I started to become electrosensitive. I'd be sat at my, my desk and on my computer on Wi-Fi and I'd be getting shooting pins and needles up my arm 
and uh, my my knees would like burn. And it was a little while before it, it kind of clicked with me. And I went and did a bit of searching and I thought, maybe it's the Wi-Fi. So I turned the Wi-Fi off. I stopped using my phone so much and my my the pain in my hand stopped. And sometimes when my Wi-Fi turns on on my computer, I can kind of tell when I'm typing because I can feel it in my hands. And I can't use my phone very much um, for very long if I'm surfing on cellular data or anything like that. I have to put it down because it just I have a weird sensation in my hands. Um, but also at the same time, I started to have thyroid problems as well. And it, it might have been because I'd had a period of stress before. But I do also think it was because I suddenly I moved into a house where I'm surrounded by other people's Wi-Fi um, systems. And also there's about six different phone towers surrounding me like on on buildings and I bought a monitor and actually still so far of all the houses that I've tested my house reads the highest so I, I changed everything to wired like the boys playstation controllers are wired um, my laptop's wired now I was only using my phone when it was plugged in and it was wired but really I couldn't do anything about what's coming from the outside in unless I wanted to tin for my house or something yeah um, so I'm actually moving and I'm moving back into the country again. Um, but I have no doubt that it, it tipped me over the edge. Like I think that I was probably already a bit delicate in the delicate balance because of other things. And then just adding that extra exposure on top of me just kind of tipped me over the edge. And um, I actually found out as well at the same time that I'd um, got a mold overgrowth and I'd been exposed to mold and mold can make you more electrosensitive. So there are lots of people that have problems with mold overgrowth in their intestines and other areas. Um, and there are lots of people, more people seem to be complaining about electro hypersensitivity. Um, one thing about the 5G at the moment is it's kind of operating on the same frequencies that the 4G um, has been, but the, the spectrum can be opened and will be opened to have lots of layered frequencies. And that's the thing that really concerns me is that with these these new frequencies haven't been used before. And in the past, when they've rolled out new um, technology and things like that, there does seem to have been an impact on the global health. So I don't know if you've read The Invisible Rainbow by Arthur Furstenberg. No, it's a I know the book. It's a brilliant book. And it starts off talking about electrical sickness and like telegraph sickness and things like that. And then associating like these pandemics that happened over time with um, the increase in the rollout of different technologies, radar and radio and all different um, frequencies. So there's no doubt in my mind that certain frequencies are harmful. And this is evidenced, you know, there's thousands of pieces of research on the harm of electromagnetic fields and radio frequency. There's, if anyone wants to read more about it, there's a very good document that was prepared in 2012 that's called the Bioinitiative Report. And it has all the evidence of, you know, DNA damage, oxidative stress, fertility, thyroid, um, a whole heap of symptoms that can be caused or diseases that can be caused by electro um, hypersensitivity. And I have been in touch with people over the last two years that have live near 5G or have had 5G switched on near them and they've seen a big change in their health. But of course, the other thing is that that's happening right now that hasn't happened before is the low Earth orbit Starlink um, satellites. And in the last two years, it's not just been 5G that's been rolling out, though he's been putting God knows how many satellites into space. 
This is the and space fence, isn't it? The so-called space fence, yeah. Yeah, like an, yeah. like the net. And it's yeah. quite horrifying, actually. If you go and look at Starlink and see how it's all linked up and where the satellites are. And it's live in a few places, you know, um, over Ukraine as well, because he said, didn't he set it up over Ukraine? Yeah. Um, yeah. But it's live in some places. But that that's another thing that's had no, like, due diligence done about the impact on not just us as humans, but, the, you know, the whole environment and the planet, really. Um, and we are electromagnetic beings. There is absolutely no doubt about that. And there are uh, frequencies that are harmonic and that can be very healing, but there are also ones that um, can lead to a lot of problems, especially when you think about all the insomnia, anxiety, depression, mental health problems that people have. In the old days, they used to call that neurasthenia, and it was an electrical illness. They called it neurasthenia. Um, but Sigmund Freud, good old Freud again, um, changed that to neurosis. Yeah. So he changed the diagnosis to neurosis and made it a mental health problem when actually maybe it's an environmental problem. So I hope that um, if people are having ill effects from 5G, that they are trying to fight it. And maybe a kilometre away is not going to impact you. It's when they're 100 metres yeah, away from the you problem, because they it? can't travel very far. But it's if you've got one right outside your bedroom, for example, then... You should really try and see if you could get that taken down because um, they are definitely... I mean, do you remember when the mobile phones were first rolled out and the first mobile phone masts? I do. I remember. And, yeah. I and rem nobody wanted them anywhere near them, no, did they? No, no, And they now didn't. they're on top of, like you say, hospitals, apartments, everywhere. They show and up out of the blue, sometimes overnight. And as you said, you wonder, you know, who gave plan permission, when, when did it happen? It's um, what you said there about neurasthenia and neurosis, Freud. You've got some brain, Jenny. You've got some memory in some brain. Uh, I'd forgotten about that. Jim Mars, God rest him, one of the greatest writers of all time, talked to me about that many years ago. And you just brought that back to me. I'd like the next time we talk to talk about this issue. Okay. Because it's massive and it's getting no attention now because of everything else, because of COVID and Ukraine. But it is absolutely huge. And there, there are definitely things that people can do to mitigate as well the impact and not just by making changes in your household and how you use your technology, but um, like making sure that you haven't got mould issues and um, people have quite a high uh, need for magnesium and other supplements that might be able to help. But there are some things that can help and making sure that like uh, people are grounding, like you're getting your shoes off and your feet off onto the actual earth and ground very very important with all this electricity and stuff around us and magnetic fields and grounding definitely helps feet in salt water or on the sand or in the on the earth definitely helps let's do a whole show on that in in early may how about that okay deal i don't give you anything for it i'm, I'm asking you to come and do an hour with me and um and, and not offering anything in return jenny is start life j-e-n-i-u-s start life that's the website. Jenny, very experienced nurse, trainer of nurses, recruiter. You know that by now. Uh, on the website, you'll find solutions around nursing, nutritional and holistic services. So do check her out. Jenny is start life. Thanks for your time today, Jenny. I really appreciate it. You have no idea how much I appreciate it. Loads of fantastic comments on the website about it too. Until next time, thanks very much. Thank you very much, Richie. Bye for now. Jenny Lowe's, brilliant lady, live from Portugal. 
And thanks to her for that. And thanks to you for your comments as well. They're, they're, they are legion. I want to get into that. In fact, it's been a long time since Chris Busby was on the programme. I'm in, I'm in touch with Chris occasionally uh, through text message. I must get him to come on. Very important what she said about ICNERP there. Don't ask me to give you the abbreviation letter by letter. <laughs> but the body that's supposed to regulate electromagnetic technology is basically the industry. It is the industry regulating itself. Um, did a show about that with Chris Busby about three years ago, before all of this COVID stuff. Yeah. On the clotting and menstrual cycles impacted by maybe being around jabbed people, not just having the jab, but around them. Kelly didn't have the jab. She says her cycle seems to be going back to normal because I will not let the jabbed even touch my skin. I had terrible problems for a year and a massive blood clot came out of me and I wasn't pregnant. Never had anything like that happen in my life before. That's uh, Kelly. Thanks, Kelly. David says, I believe you can catch something from a jabbed person. But the main question I have with this is, is it anything like actually being vaccinated? I can't believe that something that is injected can have the same level of penetration if, uh, if it's picked up via a droplet, etc. Now, it's interesting because a number of our friends, uh, including Spiro Skouras, and I'm going to mention Spiro in a moment, said to me during this programme, probably a year and a half ago when I was talking to a guest, Richie, the technology is basically there for self-spreading jabs. You see, these bastards have thought of everything. They know that there are those of us, namely you and me and many more like us, who will never, ever, ever, ever have one of their jabs for whatever, whether it's COVID or something else, never. And the dastardly scumbags, well, yeah, they've developed the technology for people to be jabbed and then for those people to shed, to spread, the jab spreads itself, the vaccine spreads itself in the population, reaching those who were reluctant and said no. And that's all true. That's all true. Look, I want to I wanna mention something. I heard from Spiro Skouras overnight. You know I love Spiro Skouras, uh, the Arizona-based journalist and broadcaster. One of the nicest guys I've ever met in in journalism in the 20 odd years that I've been doing it. His father, Lakey, Skouras, has passed away and he's understandably devastated by that and he left me know overnight. Lakey was um, a fairly regular listener to this programme and he phoned in the phone-ins a couple of times over the years and I'm not just saying this but his, phone, his, his calls were brilliant. Um, he's a veteran. He's an army veteran or he was, uh, God rest him. And he phoned in the programme to talk about his experiences, but also how the army, how it medicated people and forced vaccines on people and treatments on people, namely on soldiers, um, without their consent and without their knowledge. And he had personal experience of that, did Lakey, and it affected him. And he came on to talk about that very upbeat, very lovely guy, very sunny uh, disposition and a really lovely man. And I know this because whenever I would interview Spiro, now, I would interview Spiro Skouras, and I will uh, interview Spiro Skouras in the future because he's a brilliantly briefed journalist and he's lovely and he's a great communicator. And um, when, when you ask somebody like Spiro Skouras to come on, when they come on, they're doing you a favour. 
a big favour. But his father, Lakey, would never fail to send me a long and lovely email humbly thanking me for interviewing his son, which is an extraordinary thing, really. And I used to say to him, you know, Lakey, Spiro's doing me a big favour here. You know, he's an articulate, well-researched, well-briefed, genuine journalist with a great channel. And he also has a very, very big following. So he's doing me a favour by coming on. But an incredibly humble man, Lakey uh, Skouras. And he was battling an illness for um, for the best part of a year, I would say, because Spiro's been keeping me up to date with um, how he's been doing. But he's passed away. So we say in Ireland, um, God be with him. And, and, would you believe, one of his many talents, Lakey, was um, as a singer and a musician. And Spiro sent me, before he died, uh, a week or two ago, he sent me a link to, uh, to a song. He had an album, did Lakey, in 1997. The album was called Some of Us, right, Some of Us. And from that album, I'm going to play you a song called Dragon. So that's dragging with, uh, with an end, Dragon. I'm going to play that for you now. We're going to close out the programme uh, with that. Thanks so much to my guests today. Thanks to Kevin Barrett and thanks to uh, Jenny Lowe's. Um I really appreciate their time. If you missed any of the programme, you'll get it on richieallen.podomatic.com or your regular podcast provider. So in memory of Lakey Skura, who so I didn't know that well, but I greatly appreciate it. And uh, for his lovely son Spiro, here is Some of Us. Speak tomorrow. Mm-hmm.